Merry Christmas, everybody. Uh, good to have you here. What? Happy Christmas. Uh, humbug. No. <laughs> Uh, um, I'll ask you a question later. I'm like, did I did I miss something cultural? I don't know. I don't know. Um, So um, just before I jump into the message, just to help you think ahead to where we're going coming into 2021. I mean, we've been talking a lot about um, the calling as the church. You know, we are God's instrument for reaching the world. Um, and so God wants to use us to reach people that don't know him, yo, um, with the news of the gospel. And so um, one of the things that we're going to do coming into the new year is really be prioritizing the ways that we can reach out to people in our community that don't know him. Uh, and one of the first ways that we're going to do that is by jumping into Alpha. So Alpha, the Alpha course is a course that was started back at home and um, it's been a really successful tool in helping people that don't know Jesus come in, have a conversation around the important things of life. It's not a teaching at them. It's not a trying to convince them what they're supposed to believe. It's just a conversation um, kind of sparked by the Christian perspective on topics. And then it's a space for people to come in and share what they believe and, and build relationship and have conversations. So we're, we're going to be launching that. That coming into the new year but before we go there I wanted to over the next couple of weeks show a few different videos about Alpha that just uh, help you to see what it is how it functions why we do it so we're gonna watch a video just now um, but my challenge to you would be as we walk into the new year be asking the question and thinking through the question like who in my life is, is doesn't know Jesus is seeking and asking questions that, that we can invite along to this uh, and, and through that, bless them as they find a safe space to be able to process the big questions in life. So let's watch a quick video. Having conversations about life, faith, and Jesus is hard. And this is interesting because at some point, everyone wrestles with life's big questions. Questions about hope, purpose, meaning, and love. Imagine creating a space where people in our community, our friends, neighbors, and coworkers, can come and have conversations in a way that is authentic and unforced. Where leaders don't need to have all the answers and anyone can ask tough questions and share honestly about what they believe. That's what Alpha is all about. Alpha started in a church in London years ago with a simple idea to engage friends who might not typically go to church. Lives were transformed and it began to grow all over the world. Today, you can find Alpha in schools, coffee shops, church buildings, prisons, and homes. And so far, millions of people have experienced Alpha. So what is Alpha? Alpha is a series of interactive sessions exploring the basics of the Christian faith. In each session, you eat food, listen to a talk, and have discussions in small groups. Eating food together creates space for people to connect, relax, and build friendships. The talks tackle core questions about life and faith from a Christian perspective. And the discussion allows people to unpack these ideas without fear of being corrected or judged. All of this is done in a fun environment where anyone is welcome. There are three main sets of talks you could use. The Alpha Film Series, Alpha with Nikki Gumbel, and the Alpha Youth Series. Each is designed with a different audience in mind and is typically run over eight to 12 weeks with a weekend away where there are opportunities to experience worship through music and moments for prayer. Alpha also comes with everything you need to empower others to be involved, like discussion guides and training videos for you and your team. 
and all the talks and tools are available online and can be downloaded for free. By running Alpha, you're creating a space where people can connect with each other and connect with God. Sign up, get started, run Alpha today. Well, I don't know how you feel about that, but I get excited. <laughs> um, one of the things that, that's interesting, uh, and I mean, there's so many sociological, cultural things going on right now that are just fascinating, but Alpha, when they started it, they've got this big emphasis on it has to be in person, uh, you have to have a meal together, you have to go away in this retreat, and, and it doesn't help people, and it doesn't uh, create the kind of conversations you want unless you have all of that. And then COVID hit. <laughs> And they were like, well, we got to figure out a lot, an online version of this. And, and there's a few things that they've figured out as, as they've moved Alpha online. And one of them is, um, in this season, uh, we're in a season where people feel more disconnected than any other time in life. And so creating a space where people who don't have community can come together for deep, vulnerable relationships is really important for people out in the community. Um, it's a season where lots of people around, around about us, <laughs> around us, uh, all the people around us, sorry, people mock me for my Britishisms, but <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so people around about, they're, they're asking uh, big questions about life, and, and there, there aren't places to go and have those conversations and dialogue. And in many senses, Christians are the worst people in some senses, to have those conversations with because we don't feel safe. So creating spaces where we who feel like we've got some answers to questions can, can create a space where other people can ask them and agree with us or disagree with us, and we love them and support them anyway. So this is a hugely important part of it. Um, but one of the other things that they've found is um, the, the level of engagement now that Alpha has moved online is significantly higher than it was when it was in person. And people feel, get this, people feel safer sharing vulnerably online than they do when they share in a room with strangers. Get that. Um, so it's, it's just exciting. It's exciting to create an opportunity. This is not let's get people in a room and shove the gospel down their face. This is not get people in a room, correct to thinking and tell them what we think. This is get people in a room, the Christian perspective is shared, and it's a, a launch pad into discussion about different people's lives, perspectives, and where they're at, and building relationships. Uh, and, and offering hope. So, so we're excited for that. There'll be more information coming. We'll give you the details of what it's going to look like, when we're going to do it um, soon. But I wanted you thinking now, who are the people in your life that may benefit from this, that are looking for that space to dialogue and have conversations? So, so you can think about that. So that's all that aside. We're... Now I can do the message. <laughs> um, so we are in this series, we are, we're calling it Emmanuel, God with us. And, and at the end of the day, what are we doing? We're asking the question, like, when we look at Christmas and we revisit the Christmas story, what difference does the presence of God make? Like this promise, God with us, what difference does that make to the way we live and, and how we approach this Christmas season? So we're going to start by looking at Matthew chapter 2. It's a really familiar part of the Christmas story. Um, and then we'll use that kind of to bounce off into the topic of love that we're going to look at today. So this is Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 1, and it's up on the screen. So he says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the, peop the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. 
But you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judea are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with the gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So I just want to draw attention to a couple of things in here. You know, when it comes to the Christmas story, we've always got the nativity in our head, and we've always got a version of the story in mind that's not always accurate to what the events really are. So let, let me start by saying, you know, every nativity and every song you sing t sings about the three wise men or the three kings, right? Where does it say in there there's, there's three of them? So we know there's more than one. There's three gifts, so we make the assumption that they gave three gifts because back then no one would chip in to get a gift together. <laughs> so, so we don't know how many people there are. So, so just one of those ways that that image, there's nothing bad about the image, um, but just one of the ways that, that we're off-center with that image. Uh, another piece that's interesting is, is wise, one, wise men, or this term magi, um, was really a class of Persian that was close to what you might consider like a priest. So these were people who would look at the stars. There were astrologers, there were diviners, and they would look at the stars and the constellations, and they would interpret what God was trying to do on the earth. So they had respect to these wise, like priestly type people. So when we talk about kings, you're really far from what they would have been. Um, they're more like priests than they are kings, but, but, but they have this gift and this passion, and the passion is they would look at the created order, they would lie at night and look at the stars, and they would interpret from those stars what was happening. And the beautiful thing about this part of the story for me is you've got these men who are, they're, they're, they're doing their craft, they're looking at the stars, and somehow in the created order, God has put a sign in the stars that points them ahead to Jesus as the Messiah. And so they come and do this big, long journey to get to Bethlehem uh, to, to find this ruler that's been predicted. Um, one of the things that I think is extra interesting about this, if you follow the news and if you're at all interested in astrology, it's all over the news right now, the, the Bethlehem star is happening soon. Um, and so over, over this Christmas season, there's this astrological convergence where Jupiter and Saturn are going to overlap in a way in the sky that's going to resemble what the Bethlehem star was like at the time uh, that this story is talking about. And if you go back and you look historically at people that would write about, like, what was the, the Bethlehem star? I mean, you go back years, people are saying it was probably the convergence of Jupiter and Saturn. And, and some other constellation coming together. So I think it's really neat that right now the entire world is looking at the sky and reflecting on this Bethlehem star. And, and, and that's cool because Scripture is really clear that God created the heavens and the earth, that his invisible qualities are being revealed through everything we see, from the stars to the trees to the people that we're walking around with. And so just as these guys, non-Jewish people, who were looking into the sky in this worldly version of trying to pursue truth, they found an element of the truth in the sky that led them to Jesus. And so right now we're in this season where people all over the world are again looking at the sky 
trying to make sense of these planets converging. And in the middle of this season where, where COVID is happening and the world's all upside down and people are lonely and asking questions, is it coincidental that this is the time in an 800-year window when everyone's been reminded of this event that points ahead to Jesus as the Messiah? I think that's, that's awesome. Um, and I think it's extra important Matthew is writing, he's addressing a Jewish audience so he's writing to the Jewish people, and he's trying to explain to them that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised. And so he's walking through the history of the Jewish nation. He's walking through the things that were predicted in their scriptures, and he's shown with it all, like Jesus is fulfilling all of these things that point to, to what your teachers were teaching. Um, and so it's really weird in that gospel that he highlights these rulers from Persia are these leaders from Persia that are coming in search of the Messiah. And it's, again, that, that clear message in Scripture that there is a people that God has chosen and has called out in the world, but the gospel is not just for them. It's for every person, and every person in the world is looking at the world and seeing hints that point to Jesus and the hope that he brings. And now we get the, the beautiful gift and responsibility of walking with people and saying, I see the hope that you're longing for here, let me help you see the fullness of the hope that's really offered to you. I just think that's a beautiful part of what's going on in this story and, and a great reminder. Um, the, the last part, just to, to allude to this before we jump on, is the, the, the moment at the end here, these people see a star. They go on a journey and they bring gifts that result in the worship of the Messiah. So they've got this love of their craft, They've got the love of their status. They, they've they're got a commitment to it strong enough that they'll travel across the known world. They come to Jesus and they bring these gifts and they worship. And so there's this connection between love, the love that they have, the love that they experience when they meet the child and its mom and these gifts that they lavish. So there's a connection between our worship and our love. Uh, there's a connection between our presence God's presence as we worship, God's presence as we experience love. And so, so we're going to look at that and that theme as it plays out as we talk about love. So that's where we're going. We're looking at the Advent theme of love. Um, this is not a how to grow in love message. Um, so if you want something that looks more specifically at how do I grow my capacity to love, we talked about that in the Praying with Paul series when we looked at 1 Thessalonians 3. So we talked through some real practical ways that you can expand your capacity to love. So you can always jump back there and revisit that. Um, but we're gonna go a different direction today. But the last preface before of that is I just want to share a couple of stories that whenever I think about love are the stories that kind of come to mind and that I find myself reflecting on all the time. So, so the first one is a moment what, eight years ago, <laughs> when Ella was born. So I talked last week, like I had cancer and, and we had this season where I was diagnosed with cancer, I'm going through chemo, I was miserable. I was bloated, I was covered in zits, I, uh, I had no energy, I didn't wanna eat, I didn't wanna do anything, I was just miserable. This medicine is attacking and poisoning my body to try and kill this cancer. Uh, and so it was a horrible experience. In the middle of that, or right at the start of that, we find out that we're pregnant with Ella. And so we have this amazing journey where it's the miserableness of cancer with the hope of in nine months' time, this little baby's gonna be joining us and we're gonna get to experience the joy of being a family. 
And I can remember, you fast forward to Monica goes into labor. And Monica was one of those women that had the lovely experience of a 42-hour process from starting to finishing. Um, she also had the wonderful experience of losing like half her blood during delivery, which wasn't so good. And they, were, they thought she was going to die. They're ordering blood transfusions. I thought she was going to die. Um, and, and then obviously Ella as a baby is, is traumatized and because of what's going on in Monica's body and this baby trying to get out. So I remember being in the hospital and I'm watching Monica go white. Her lips are going blue. She's shaking. The doctor's like calling for help. And I'm thinking, Monica's going to die. What am I going to do? And there's this little baby. And then they, they, they get the baby out. They plop it on Monica's chest for like a second. And then they're like, get her away. We've got to do this stuff. And then they wrap this baby and they hand me Ella. And there's a couple of things that I remember so distinctly about the mo that moment. I remember holding Ella as they hand her to me, and all of a sudden, everything else in the room just disappeared. Uh, and I remember holding her, and I remember the first thought as I looked at her, I was like, oh my goodness, that's Monica's eyes. I was just like so struck by just how perfectly she had the eyes that I'd been looking into for her whole relationship. I remember that moment. I remember holding this baby and just being overwhelmed like, how can I feel this overwhelmed with affection for this little thing that I've just met? And I remember being like, like just perplexed by it. And I remember holding her and I'm like, what do I do? I'm praying that Monica doesn't die. And I'm holding this baby, you, you need a mom. So get praying. And I'm, I'm, I'm holding this little baby. And, 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 I, and I remember holding her and just, I started talking to her. And, and I'm looking at Ella and I'm going, you know, I, I don't understand why. But I know that it doesn't matter what you do, this feeling will never go away. You didn't earn it. There's no reason why I should feel this way. I just love you like crazy. And I know there's going to be a day in the future where you're going to be older and you're going to look me in the face and you're going to say, I hate you. <laughs> and I'm not going to care because I love you and it will never stop. And, and I remember in that moment having this like next level of overwhelming where it was just like, is that really how God looks at me? Is that really how he looks at me? That there's nothing I could ever do to deserve it, and there's nothing I could ever do to lose it, this affection that he has for me. And I just, uh, this overwhelming moment that I constantly come back to when it comes to my intimacy with Jesus. The second thing, second story that I think about a lot when it, when it comes to this situation and, and thinking about the concept of love is in a similar time period. So it's, it's cancer. I'm in the middle of it. Um, I'm one of those people who has a really adverse reaction to the drugs that they're giving me for chemotherapy. So I get in the hospital the first night. They put me on an IV overnight. They're pumping platinum into my body. So I was essentially Wolverine for a couple of nights, um, which I thought was super cool. Um, that was adamantium, but this platinum will do. Um, but yeah, they're pumping this into my body because it's, it's the, the job of chemo is to kill every fast replicating cell in your body. And, and, and in that process, they're killing off the cancer that's abnormally reproducing quickly. So that's why you lose your hair because it grows fast. It threatens an infertility. It causes all sorts of issues in your body. Um, and so I'm, I'm going through this process. That first night, I wake up in the morning, 5 a.m. From 5 a.m. to 1 p.m., I vomited violently every 20 minutes. So that's three times an hour from 5 a.m. to 1 p.m. So what's that, like 18 like, sessions of retching so hard, my stomach was like cramping. Like my body was racked with pain. They're like, they're filling me with anti-sickness meds. It was horrible. Um, I'm also one of the 
people that it works well with, um, which is why it made me so violently ill. But part of that meant that I was one of the people that gets really bad uh, neutropenia as a result. So all your white blood cells are killed out and you end up with zero immune system. And so for medics, that's, that's really concerning because then you can get any illness that's out there. And remember, this is like no November, December, January, February. So not the time of year that you want to be ill. And so a horrible season and and so we're in the hospital and they're like okay your white blood cells like are really dangerously low this is problematic we're going to give you these injections they're called gcsfs and you just take them and you just like squeeze your stomach and just like inject yourself in your stomach and do it at this point of the day and it'll kick in overnight and it's going to cause your bone marrow to like kind of sponge and swell up a little bit and in that process it produces more white blood cells so that when your immune system is tanking your body will then have more white blood cells to release into your body so that you have an immune system and we're like great and then she goes but just to forewarn you um, it can be painful some people have a side effect you see the pattern so far <laughs> some people have a side effect because at the end of the day what's happening is the bone marrow is expanding inside of your bones and so it doesn't have anywhere to go so it expands your bones, and it can feel like your bones are trying to explode out of your body. Um, and they're like, you wouldn't be the first grown man to call me on the phone in the middle of the night crying, asking for pain relief. So if it starts to hurt, there's a couple of things you can do. Take some uh, ibuprofen. I'm like, what's the American name? Uh, that one's the same. Take some ibuprofen, and then, and then they're like, if it gets a little bit like, more sore, like run a hot bath and just lie in a hot bath. After that, if that's not working, you need to call in. Well, of course, for me, it starts kicking in about 3 a.m. And I'm like, I'm not calling them to have them send out a doctor to give me, like, ibuprofen, essentially. So I'm like, ah, oh, well, we'll just wait till the morning. We'll get through this. It's not that bad. Next thing you know, here I am, uh, sitting on the couch. And if you imagine the biggest bones in your body, they're around about your pelvis, lower back, and in the top of your legs, down to your knees. So basically, from my lower back to my knees, I would have these pulsing moments where it felt like my bones were going to explode. Um, and it was excruciating. And it came in waves. And so I'm sitting on the couch, and I have a really high pain tolerance. So normally this sort of stuff doesn't bother me. But I just remember lying on the couch, and, and I, it, it hurt if I stood up, it hurt if I lay down, it hurt if I sit down. I couldn't get anywhere comfortable. And I would lie there, and all of a sudden I'd get this like wave of like, the bone marrow expanding, and I'm sitting there, no joke, I'm on the couch, and I'd be sitting, and I'd be like, oh, it's coming, it's coming, it's like contractions, and I'd be like, mm, like I couldn't do anything but curl into ball. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, and it's coming again, and I'm like, oh my goodness, and I remember lying on the couch, I remember we had a guy living with us at the time, and he's looking at Monica, and he's like, is he dying? Is he, is he dying? And Monica's looking at me, and I'm like, I'll get through this. And it was horrendous. Um, and so the next morning, like, we, we, I kind of get through it in the morning. I'm like, we have to call the doctor, because it only lasts for so long afterwards. I'm not going through that again tonight. We call the doctor, and lo and behold, I had the medication in the house that I already needed to solve the problem. But they prescribed me more of it, so, <laughs> so that was not good to know. Um, the, other, the other little piece of information, just by way of self-disclosure, that you have to know is when they said to me, here's these injections, you just pinch your stomach and you inject yourself. I went, eh, eh, that ain't happening. I was like, I'm not doing that. Uh, I'm always, I'm not going to stab myself in the stomach with a needle. I was like, but my wife is a dental hygienist and she gives injections, so you can show her what to do <laughs> and she'll do it for me. Uh, so she lovingly did it. But 
So this is all horrible, like excruciating pain. I've never felt anything like it in my life. I thought I was gonna die multiple times. But I remember the next day we're sitting on the couch. So remember, it's cancer, it's horrible. I've just had this excruciating pain night. We're sitting on the couch and Monica looks over at me and she's like, you know what? It's like, this is probably not gonna come out right. But um, I'm gonna look back on this moment as the sweetest time in our marriage so far. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, we're done. <laughs> You're crazy. Uh, no, but, but just like, what? She's like, this is the first time since we've gotten together that I feel like you need me, that I feel like you're letting me serve you, that I feel like we have to function as a team to get through this. And as horrible as it is, the closeness that I feel right now is beyond anything that I've experienced so far. And, and you're just like, Okay, <laughs> but, but we look back on that moment, and we still do, as it was a really special time where God did some refinement in both of us, where he crafted something in us as a team that, that enabled us to weather some of the other things that were going to come later. Um, so when I, when I start thinking about love, when I start thinking about the concept of incarnation, when I start thinking about the Christmas story and what it is that God is conveying in the moment of incarnation, like these are the moments that come to mind as I think about what this love was that he was trying to convey to us. This love that is imparted, like that we experience as parents, it's imparted in a moment inexplicably. Um, that gives you this overwhelming sense of attachment to someone, a desire for their best, and the realization that it doesn't matter how far they push you away, it can never go away. It's the same kind of love that it doesn't matter how painful things are, that their presence in the middle of it uh, is, is, is working to do something transformative to make you the, the person that you're supposed to be and able to weather the things that you're supposed to weather. Um, and you know it with friends and friendships. Like for me, a lot of my closest friendships are people that we've weathered stuff together. Whether it's other friends of a cancer, whether it's friends that were walking through cancer with me, whether it's friends that you have a fallout with, but then you resolve the conflict and you move forward stronger. Like there, there's something about this love that doesn't reject someone, even when the going gets tough, that, that's inexplicable uh, in its desire to support and bless that person. This is the kind of love that we're talking about being revealed at Christmas. Um, and uh, I mean, uh, you, you and Ella, uh, you and Sky are not here, but, but you know, that, that weird thing, just as I think about it, when um, I remember when you was born and the prep, to, the, the preparation or the lead up to you and being born, looking at Monica and going, I had that experience where my heart was like overwhelmed with Sky. Like, I don't have any room for another one. Like, like did, and, and I remember asking her, does it like, does your heart expand again, or is that like your capacity? Now it's half Ella and half Ewan. But just, you know that moment, the second child comes along and it's just like you've got the same but more because your capacity increased from what it was the first day. That, that just blows my mind. Anyway, I'm digressing. <laughs> we're, we're talking in, in this, this time about presence. This is all about incarnation, you know, God coming and living on the earth. It's all about his presence, and presence is what really matters. When it comes to the concept of love, it's about presence. So in that moment where I'm holding Ella, it's a moment of presence as this new life and, and me come together with God. When I think about the moment on the couch with Monica in the middle of pain, it's, it's a moment of presence, her presence with me in, in the middle of the struggle. And presence is the thing that marks our love. 
without presence, it's really hard to experience any kind of love. So presence is what matters. I think it's, it's th- this line is up here. Love is, is not about presence coming into this season. It's about presence. And, and think about this for a moment. Like, you know a gift that's been given to you that's given just to fulfill an obligation and a gift that's given out of presence. You know, someone walks into Fred Meyer, they go to the prepackaged gift section, they pick something up that you're not interested at all, they hand it to you. It's an expression of their love, but that's a marked difference to someone that brings you a personalized gift that knows you, knows your heart, and walks with you in it. Um, I grew up with my dad living overseas. Um, He was in Dubai for 16 years, so I saw my dad a couple of times a year if I was lucky. and he would send us money for Christmas. And I mean, I loved getting the money. I, I love the money. Give me the money. No, uh, I loved receiving the cash because it let me do things. But what I really wanted was his presence. Like I wanted my dad. And we would say like, like oh, dad's buying us off again. Like another year in Dubai, he gave us the money that, that lets us, oh, it's all right. I'm here and here's the money. Like I want you. Um, and we know this. It's in a season like this, when we're looking at Christmas in the middle of a global pandemic, One of the big things that's frustrating for us is the restriction on presence. Like we want to be present with people. Um, And and then it's like, how can I be present? That ability to be present has been interrupted and it makes us frustrated. Um, Love is not about the presence in this season. It's not about presence, it's about presence. It's about his presence with us. It's about our presence with one another. And we can do that at a distance. Um, it, it requires more intentionality, but I wanted to give just a little side note here. I, I just observe and I comment on things that I see happening around about and what I hear from people. But I've noticed there are, there are a lot of people that I'm around who are very, very vocal right now that they're so angry about what the government is doing in terms of restricting our ability to be present with one another in the season. And the, the people that I'm noticing in my life who are most vocally angry about it are the people who are least present when they're together with their family. I watch them sit on a phone, I watch them sit in another room watching TV, uh, I watch them with their head in a book, I watch their family doing something, they're off in a world of their own, and I was like, it's just interesting that we can be vocally against something happening, but then not step into it when we have the moment to. Um, so this is, is just an encouragement in this season. As, as you're looking at what it look like to be present with people this Christmas, be present. Stick the phone away, put the screen off, and be present because that's, that's what really matters and that's what's going to convey the love that we're looking for. So, I mean, I, I've talked about this a lot. You know, the Bible is a story of presence. The incarnation is about presence, and it's a continuation of this. John 1.14, great verse that I've alluded to. Um, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. What's that? God came not just to kind of drop in and drop out, but he came to be present, to make a dwelling with us, to live amidst us and even inside of us. And, and we have, one of the issues that we have in, in, I always want to say the Western world, in the world, in our fallen condition, uh, we misunderstand doctrines like incarnation. We misunderstand the Christmas story. And, and here's how, because we look at God is up there and out there in heaven, and he's ruling over everything, and then at the end of the story, God is up there, and he's the center of everything, and he's worshiped, and then you get this little 30-year 
like chunk in the middle where he comes down and he walks on the earth and it's like the abnormal moment in the life of God where he's present where the rest of the time he's kind of out there. And, and, and we look at this Christmas story and the incarnation as the abnormality in the story. But the reality is the incarnation is true to God's nature and is the only thing you could expect of the character of our God. So he's a God who wanted our presence. He's a God who wants to be present with us. Uh, he's a God who has always lived self-sacrificially, self-emptying, other-oriented, poured-out love on uh, the, the members of the Godhead pouring out love onto this world, creating us to lavish us with love. So that kind of God, the only thing he could do was to enter into the story, to be present in our pain, to live alongside us, to prove to us that this is the character that he had. This is not like a moment where God's character changes and all of a sudden he has like an incarnation moment and then reverts back to how he was before. This is the God he's always been. Uh, from beginning to end. Because that's his nature, to self-empty, to self-sacrifice, to, to look for the best for others, when he comes and he lives here, he doesn't just stay here and live. He comes and he takes on the nature of a servant. Because when he leaves heaven to dwell on the earth, he's emptying himself. Well, when he's on the earth, he can't change his character. So he continues to empty himself and he takes on the lowest position and serves everyone else. And then even in that posture, he's willing to sacrifice himself as another movement of self-emptying to give us the gift of his presence. So by doing that, he then doesn't just come and live alongside us. He's now able to pour out his spirit so that his spirit can inhabit us and we get the fullness of the presence of God dwelling inside of us. And then as the story goes on, we think, you know, well, that's the story ended, so now he's back up there, and we're going to go to heaven and worship him. But even in his exaltation back to the right hand of the Father, he stays in the role of intercessor. So he continues to be in a self-emptying, other-oriented role where he's at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, praying for us, crying out for us. Uh, and that's amazing. This is who he is. The incarnation is so true to God's nature. So in this season, as we're looking at the Christmas story, it's about having the nature of God revealed to us again, that he gives of himself constantly to bless the people that he loves. I want to look at just a couple of passages to finish with, to, to look at, okay, what is this love? Let's define it and give you a couple of challenges around this. But you know, the most famous love passage, 1 Corinthians 13, even people that don't like Jesus like this passage. Uh, but, just being funny. But, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, this, this is loved. You'll find it everywhere. Um, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but I have not love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. This is such a prophetic word to the church. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all the mysteries and have all the knowledge and I have faith that can move a mountain, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. And then Paul describes what this love looks like. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, the amazing thing about this passage for me is Scripture tells us that God is love, which means you can take the word love and you can just replace it with God. And this tells you the character of God. 
And the question is, is this accurate to how you view God? God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Where does that sit in your theology? (laughs) He does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. God always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God never fails. This is the God that we're seeing in the incarnation. So exercise one, reflect on that with with God there. Is that the kind of God that, is that the view of God that you have? The the second thing is you, you just replace it with Jesus. Because, you know, as Christians, this journey is about us coming to look more like Jesus. So if we want to see in this passage what we're supposed to look like if we look like Jesus, you read it with Jesus' name in there. This is who we have to strive to be. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He doesn't dishonor others. He's not self-seeking. He's not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. He does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. But now's the hard part, because we're supposed to be looking like Jesus. So take the word love and plop yourself in the passage. And it's so inaccurate for me, I have to flip it all into question form. So Scott, is Scott patient? Mm. Is he kind? Does he envy? Does he boast? Is he proud? Does he not dishonor others? Is he, is he self-seeking? Is he easily angered? Does he keep record of wrong? Does he delight in evil or does he rejoice in the truth? Does he always protect, always trust, always hope, always persevere? Does Scott never fail? And the answer is, sadly, that's not true of me. <laughs> it's in process. And it's a good moment as we're walking into 2021, like sit with that passage, like which of these elements are more true of you and which are less true of you? What are the areas where you need to look more like Jesus and, and say, God, I want to partner with you this year in keeping no record of wrongs, keeping short accounts. I want to partner with you this year in, in not envying. Um, the beautiful thing in all of that, it's, it's just the, the breathtaking nature of the gospel is the, the, the story of Scripture is clear that in the work that Jesus did, God looks at us. The righteousness of Jesus has been given to us. So Scripture talks about being clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see Scott is not patient, Scott is not kind. He sees the character of Jesus that's been placed on me. And he sees me as growing in patience and kindness. Um, and, and more than that, like he's placed the Holy Spirit inside of us. Romans 5.5, 5, God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Spirit that he's given us. And so the Spirit is inside of us manifesting this character in our lives if we'll cooperate with him and allow him to. Two more ways that you can look at this passage and reflect on it. Go through this passage and replace the word love with God and then replace the word love with Jesus and then replace the word love with the Holy Spirit. And ask yourself the question, do I believe the same thing of each member of the Trinity? Because what I hear people say is, you know, well, Jesus doesn't keep record of wrongs, but God the Father keeps a record of his wrongs. Jesus came to die for that stuff because he's up there keeping a record. Um, 
God and Jesus might be patient, but the Holy Spirit, he's not very patient. He's the one driving us forward. Like, you gotta change, you gotta get out there, you gotta be bold. I just do what I want, whatever I want it. Uh, and, and you'll find that within the, the three members of the Godhead, you'll have different views of, of who they are. And we're supposed to be consistent because each member of the, of the Trinity is, is united in being this kind of person. Um, and so have a think. Are, are there any of those that are different? And then have, bring that up in conversation with someone because I tell you there are psychological, there are spiritual, there are sociological reasons why you would view each person differently. Um, and then the last way to look at this passage is, is compare this with the culture that we're living in. Think about media. Think about uh, conversations on Facebook. Um, think in particular about how the, the culture around us interacts with people who are different from them, that don't see the world the same way. And, and ask yourself, is this the description of the culture that we live in? We are patient, we are kind, we don't envy, we don't boast, we don't dishonor others, we're not self-seeking, we're not easily angered, we keep no record of wrongs. Because this is the thing, this is so opposite to the culture that we live in, that if we lived what the Bible is asking us to be and live this kind of love, it is so countercultural that people would be desperate to be in our presence to experience this kind of love poured into their lives. And that right there is incarnation, us living like Jesus to reveal God's love to them through our lives. Um, it's, it's challenging, it's convicting, it's exposing, but this is the God that was revealed at Christmas. Um, last passage to look at here is Romans chapter 2. Um, the, the words here for me with this passage is this, it's baffling and it's convicting. Um, Ro, uh, Revelation chapter 2. So in Revelation, uh, John, God is communicating through John, one of Jesus' disciples. He's communicating messages to the churches. And, and, and so listen to what he says to this church at Ephesus. This is Revelation chapter 2, and it starts in verse 1. So he's talking to this church. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So just imagery about the authority that they have. But here's what he says. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you've found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. It's like, man, what a great description of a church. They're doing awesome. And when I think about this congregation, this is a good description of this congregation. Doing good deeds, persevering through hardship, looking at things that are being taught and trying to discern what's true and what isn't and standing firmly on the truth of Scripture. Like, great, that sounds really good, doesn't it? But what does he say next? Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. So you've somehow gotten off track. It's supposed to be about love of God and you've mixed it up to be about these particular ways of living in the world. But, but look what he says after. Like, I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Consider how far you have fallen. Did that first list sound like fallenness? Did that sound like, oh my goodness, these people are like pagans and they're just running out there being complete heathens? No, this is what many churches strive to be like. And he's saying, look how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you don't repent, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand from its place. I'm going to take the authority away from your church. 
and I'm going to remove my presence from your midst. So this, this crazy moment of, of this set of cultural practices that they're walking in that are in line with what God wants, but they're doing it all devoid of His presence. They're doing it all devoid of the love that they're supposed to ex- be experiencing with Him, which changes the way they relate to people that don't fit in this mold. So it's, it's hugely challenging and hugely convicting. Does, does that first list look like your life? And if it does, underneath that, is it your first love, your, your original passion for relationship with him? Or have we got into what we like culturally? Because <laughs> in the church, what tends to happen is, is we like the culture that we've created. So people come to church and you, you listen, like you like the worship music. You like the genre of Christian worship music. And so when you're in the car, you stick on Christian worship music because that's your preferred type of music. It's no longer about worship. It's just, this is what I like. I don't like rap. I listen to Christian music. Um, We come to church on a Sunday because entertainment is listening to someone give a lecture and making you feel guilty inside. (laughs) Uh, And and, and that's what you enjoy. And so you come and other people are like, I'd rather go hiking. You're like, oh, I really like a good sermon. I love a good moment of conviction. You know, how fire and brimstone gets me going. Um, But it becomes a preference of a thing that we like to experience rather than a moment to encounter him and his presence moving in and around us. Um, And that's not the way we're supposed to be. So all of this, the incarnation is about his love for us being manifest in, the person of, manifest in the person of Jesus to show us what God was really like and to model for us how we live in the world to reveal that to other people. The story that we're living is that even although you look nothing like 1 Corinthians 13, and even although our lives look a lot like Revelation 2, where we have the appearance of the right things, but we've lost the heart that underlies it. Despite all of those, we're the little baby that God's holding in his arms, going, it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter how far short you fall, this love cannot be taken away. It, it, it's the God sitting next to us on the couch in the middle of hardship saying, I am here with you, and as hard as it will be to understand this, I'm going to look at this as a sweet moment in our relationship because you moved aside to let me come and do what I've always said I would do, to love and serve and support you. Um, so to wrap up, I, I started with this line, you know, love is not about presence, but presence. So, so the, the, the challenge is focus on presence this Christmas. Like, as you're, as you're living the lead up to Christmas, think about presence. As you're engaging with family on Christmas Day, think about presence. Reflect on how God is present. How is he present in nature as you're out driving around? How is he present in the stars as these planets are coming together? How is he present in your story? Where have you seen him move in your life? Where are you seeing him move in your life right now? How do you see him present in the story uh, as we reflect on it? How do you experience his presence in the relationships that you're engaged with? Um, And then alongside that, it's about incarnation. So he showed that to us. It's our job to now incarnate that to others. So reflect on your presence. How are you present in the gifts that you're given to people? How are you present in the things that you're saying? And the encouragements and the challenges, are you present in the middle of those? How are you present and how are you revealing God's presence in the demeanor that you have as you sit with people this Christmas? He is definitely present. The question then becomes, are we present and are we ministering that presence to the people around about us? Um, So I want to wrap up with a prayer. 
that we're sticking up on the screen here. I just think this is a beautiful prayer that I've been reflecting on for the last couple of years. Um, that just speaks of, of this, like how do you become this kind of person who loves like Jesus and lives this incarnational presence in the world? Uh, so let's close with this prayer and then uh, we'll, we'll sing a song. It says, Oh God, what will you do to conquer the fearful hardness of our hearts? Lord, you must give us new hearts, tender hearts, sensitive hearts, to replace hearts that are made of marble and of bronze. You must give us your own heart, Jesus. Come, lovable heart of Jesus. Place your heart deep in the center of our hearts and enkindle in each heart a flame of love as strong, as great as the sum of all the reasons that I have for loving you, my God. O holy heart of Jesus, dwell hidden in my heart so that I may live only in you and only for you, so that in the end I may live with you eternally in heaven. Amen.